1 John 2, 18 through 28. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Let's pray together. Lord, we look to your word and we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would illuminate your scriptures to our minds and hearts so that we would see the God who is spoken of in this text, God. So we can see the heart of the one who loves us and experience his love for us by the pouring out of your spirit into our hearts, God. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal your truth today. But more than that, God, that we would see you. We would see Jesus. We would see the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we would give him thanks and glory and honor and praise forever and ever, Lord, because it's you that we are here for. It's because of you that we are here. And so it's your word that we delight in, God. So teach us what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, So moment of confession just going to like right off the bat. Um, I really sometimes enjoy deception. Games that require you to lie to one another, to trick one another, to deceive one another. Everyone remember that game Mafia, the card game, right? I'm looking at this side of the room because I know all the youth ministry is over here. Like, Mafia, or there's a game that I've, I love that my wife hates, One Night Werewolf. Have you guys played One Night Werewolf? You just have to lie about not being a werewolf so the townspeople don't kill you. Um, deception can be fun. People pay good money to be deceived. There's people in this world that make a good living deceiving people. I'm not talking about politicians and news outlets. I'm talking about magicians or illusionists, if the word magician creeps you out a little bit. A little bit. Creeps you out a little bit. Magicians. I went on a men's retreat with a guy who was a professional magician. He had a regular show 
at the Magic Castle, which is this super exclusive magician's club in Hollywood. You can only get there by invite only. And we found out that he was a magician, so we gave him a deck of cards and we said, deceive us. (laughs) Entertain us. And by the end of the night, we were all crying, burn the witch. Uh, it was he was doing stuff that you can't do with cards. Uh, he, I literally saw him do a, a card trick where um, he found the card that the person drew without ever touching the deck. He never touched the deck. The guy he was doing the trick on shuffled the cards, fanned them out, like picked his own card, and we, like, we honestly thought there was something. Creepy happening. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing what he could do to trick us. These kinds of illusions, these kinds of sleight of hand card tricks, they take advantage of the way our eyes see things and the way our brains process what we see. There's a show that my kids love uh, called Brain Games, where they talk about the science of the brain and and how to uh, how our eyes are tricked sometimes. Our brains fill in the details to kind of put things there that aren't actually there. It's fascinating the way it works. But there is a deeper deception. Uh, there is a, 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 a one that's significantly less fun. A much more sinister deception in the world. It doesn't just trick our eyes, but it tricks our hearts. It deceives our hearts. There's a deception in the world that is directed toward our fundamental beliefs about God and reality and our own identity. And this kind of deception, because it's so deep down, it's so ingrained in who we think we are and the way that we think the world is and the way that we think God is, it's so ingrained in the world and the way the world operates that it's difficult even to identify, let alone to defeat it. But we can't be deceived. We can't let our hearts and our minds and our eyes be deceived. We can't let the world and the lies deceive us. See, this church that John, the Apostle John, is writing to has experience with this kind of deception. And a portion of their membership has abandoned the fundamental truth about Jesus. John says these people went out from among us, but were not of us. See, they didn't simply disagree about some practical implication of of some doctrine or have a different preference in worship style. They abandoned their faith in Jesus altogether and wandered off into heresy. This isn't about uh, Christians who church hop or Christians who have different philosophies of ministry or slightly different views on baptism or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This isn't about Christians who go to other churches. John is talking about heretics. John is talking about people who tell lies about God, lies about Jesus, and lead people astray, that they deceive people with their lies, separate themselves from the body of Christ, and wander off into heresy. Many theologians and pastors have tried to identify the particular beliefs of these people 
through the way that John speaks in his letters. So if he is, is going really hard about Christ in the flesh, they try to discern, oh, maybe these heretics were, were claiming that Jesus wasn't human. Or if he's going you know, hard at this doctrine or that doctrine, because he's talking to a people who have experienced these, these heresies, these false teachings. And so they try to discern what is the false teaching that John is addressing by what he is saying. But for us today, who are removed from this situation, the particulars of the false doctrine is not as important as the true doctrine. When, uh, when law enforcement officers and other people who specialize in identifying counterfeit currency are being trained, they're not trained by studying the counterfeit. It's not, oh, here's one counterfeit method and here's one counterfeit bill and see how this counterfeit feels and how it, it was made and how it smells and all of these things. No, they don't, they don't learn to identify counterfeit bills by studying the counterfeit. They learn to identify counterfeit bills by studying the real thing. If you become so acquainted with the true thing, then when a lie passes through your register, oh, that's different. That's not the thing that I know. And so my hope for us as a church is that we would be so acquainted with the truth that we would be experts in the truth so that we would be deception-proof. We would not be able to be deceived because we know so clearly, so truly, so accurately what is real. What is real. And so first we need to understand the reason behind John's writing, the reason behind his, not just his writing, but his urgency in writing in this passage. See, in light of what they've experienced as a church and in light of what they would experience soon and what we will experience soon, the people in the text, the people that John is writing to must take seriously what John has to say because he says that it's the last hour. And so church, Reality Carp, we have to acknowledge, we have to know the hour is late. Time is running out. It is the last hour. 2,000 years ago, John says that it was the last hour. So where are we now? The last seconds? The last moments? How much more should we listen to what John has to say with, with attentive hearts? Understanding the truths that he is giving us to protect us in this last hour. Now, obviously, John's not talking about a literal 60-minute period, right? That, was, that would have been over a long time ago. We need to understand this phrase, the last hour, in light of what the Bible says about the timeline of human history. The whole timeline of human history. See, God's great human project began in, in creation, and it will come to completion at what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. Okay, so we're talking about hours and days, units of time, measuring time. And so John says the day of the Lord is coming. It is the last hour. It is on the horizon. It is here. Turn the page and we're there. The day of the Lord is a phrase that the biblical authors use to describe the end of the world. The Armageddon, the apocalypse, the day when God would visit creation and judge evil and sin and death once and for all, and put to end the things that corrupt the world and restore it to what it was created to be. 
And so many people throughout Old Testament history, they looked forward to this day of the Lord because they saw it in terms of God's judgment against God's enemies until those crazy prophets came along and said, uh, hey, Israel, no, it's coming against you. It's coming against God's people. The day of the Lord, God's wrath and his judgment is coming against his house because the same corruption that existed in the world, the same corruption that exists in all of these other nations, it exists in you. And God is not going to let that pass. The day of the Lord is coming against you. And so you've got passages in the Old Testament that say, who can stand in the day of the Lord for it's like a, a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap that it's coming against the house of God. And so the New Testament authors pick up on this day of the Lord idea. And they say that the coming of Jesus ushered in the last days. It ushered in the, the time before the, the day of the Lord. And so Jesus came and the author of Hebrews says that, you know, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's not to say in these recent days, like these recent days past. You remembered that like the other day. No, he's saying in this era, this epic of time, the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the coming of Jesus has ushered in the last days. The clock is set. It is ticking down to the last day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. And so John picks up on these ideas and says that not only is the day of the Lord coming, we're living in the last hour. He says it is the last hour. The day of the Lord is right around the corner. Now, interestingly, the reason John is convinced of this, the reason he, he can see that time is running out is because of the rise of opposition and deception. It's because of the presence of those he calls antichrists. The reason he is convinced that the time is short is because antichrist is coming. This word antichrist is in very popular in culture, church culture, um, we need to understand what, what it means. It, it literally just means anti-Christ, right? <laughs> Gee, thanks, Adam. Uh, ag against Christ. Anti-Christ. So John defines this, this, this person that will come and the people who are already out there. He defines them by what they are against. They are against Christ. So then in order to understand who anti-Christ and anti-Christs are, we need to understand what Christ is, right? In order to be against something, you've got to have an idea of what that thing is. And so the word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name, as I am Adam Smith. He is not Jesus Christ. He is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so Christ is just a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, but that word, uh, although now that word Christ is very much associated with Jesus, um, and Messiah is kind of associated with the concept of like a, a savior of sorts, prior to Jesus, 
these words, Christ and Messiah, they referred to one who was anointed. Christ and Messiah, they just mean anointed one. Someone who is, who is selected uh, uh, specially for a job that God had for them. And they were anointed usually with oil or something to kind of identify them as the special person called and anointed for this particular role. And so in the Old Testament, there are many anointed ones. Um, kings and priests were the ones who were most often referred to as messiahs, anointed ones. They were anointed for their role as king and priest. But then the prophets, again, they took this concept of a king being anointed and they referred to it to a king who would come in the future from the line of David, who would be anointed by God as king to deliver God's people from sin and slavery and death once and for all. And this was Messiah or the Christ. And so when Jesus is called Christ, it originally refers, when when Peter declares, we believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, what Peter is saying is, we believe that you are anointed by God as king to be our king, to be the rightful king of Israel, to be the anointed savior that we've been waiting for. But nobody expected that the Messiah, the Christ, would actually be God himself. It wasn't a part of their expectations. And so now when we think about Christ, and even in John's day, John's writing this letter in, in you know, uh, 50 years, maybe 60 years after Jesus uh, died and, and, and rose from the grave. And so even in that time, after reckoning with the identity of Jesus, his divine identity, that Jesus was not just a man, but that he was also God. And all of his full identity has now been put into that word. So the word that just meant anointed one, now, in light of who that anointed one was, means something so much more. So that John says that when we deny Jesus as the Christ, it is the same as denying God the Father. If we deny Jesus as God's anointed Savior, we deny God the Father. He says, who is the Antichrist? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the one who denies the Father and the Son. To deny Jesus as the Christ, God's anointed King and Savior, over all the world, King of kings and Lord of lords, is to deny God, to cut yourself off from God. Look, all roads don't lead to Rome. All faiths don't lead to God. To deny Jesus as the Christ is to cut yourself off from God the Father. But John goes a little bit further. John says, that Jesus is not the only one with a special anointing, right? What does Christ mean? It means anointed one. And there's a word that keeps repeating throughout this text. The anointing of the Holy One that abides in you. The anointing that teaches you. It's the same word. It's a different part of speech. It's not Christos in Greek. It's chrism. The, the, the chrism. The anointing that you have, if you've believed in Jesus, you have the anointing. 
So who is the Antichrist anti? He's against Jesus and you. He hates you. He is against God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he is against his church. And so Antichrists are also understood to be against the church. Now, this word, again, we've got to keep talking. There's, there's a lot to talk about. This word Antichrist, right? Very popular. Okay, what does it mean? It means being against Jesus as the anointed one and against his people. This word in the Bible only shows up in books that John wrote. So the New Testament uh, is written, there's many New Testament authors. You got John, you got Peter, you got Paul, right? Mark, Matthew, Luke. You've got all these different, different authors. The only time the word Antichrist is used is in John's writings. Okay, but that doesn't mean the other New Testament authors didn't talk about it. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, about someone very similar that he calls the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And what he has to say is very similar to what John says in this text. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is anti-Jesus, anti-God's people, anti-God. And according to John and Paul, his primary tool is deception. Do not be deceived. Do not be misled. Even if someone says that they have a letter from us, even if someone goes out from us and teaches this other thing, don't be deceived. But this deception, right, it's not just reserved for some future time, right? So often when we talk about Antichrist, we're talking about someone like that's going to come in the future and they're going to do all this crazy stuff and all this. That's not what John's talking about. He's, He's alluding to it. But John sees a rise in deception already. And he sees a rise in the number of people who are falling away from the faith, falling away from the church. And so 2,000 years later, we can look out and we see the same thing. We see a rise in deception. We see a rise in people abandoning the faith that they had received in the beginning and walking away into myths because of deception, because of the things that they see in the world. And then the world tells them that your faith doesn't make sense of these things. And it's a lie. It's not true. Our faith, the Christian faith, the biblical story is the only thing that makes sense of the way the world is working. This world was made good. Sin and Satan have corrupted it. You look out there, you shouldn't expect to see anything but violence and oppression and lies. But because of Jesus, you can actually find truth. The Christian faith, the Bible, the biblical story is the only thing that makes sense of the world, but there's this rise in deception. And so if 2,000 years ago, John says that it's the last hour, can you hear the clock ticking? 
It's like a basketball game. Five, four, three, two. Like it's counting down. Time is short. The hour is late. Deception is rampant. But the struggle was not just in John's church. It's not only reserved for the future. It is today. Church, our own struggle is real. Time is short. The struggle is real. We're not exempt from the enemy's deceptions. Antichrist is already being foreshadowed by all of those in the world who operate in opposition of Jesus and his church. This is Antichrist ideology. John says many Antichrists have already come. Many Antichrists are already in the world. He looks at the church, John does, and he sees the, the, the many who are once numbered among them that have abandoned their foundational truths about Jesus. They've been deceived. They're now deceiving others. And John says, sees the deception and the lies. He sees the impact of these lies on the church. He sees that even faithful believers are being tempted to rethink the foundational truths that they've been taught. And he warns that antichrists are already in the world. All of you know people. You all know people who were raised up in the church, faithful believers. Maybe they weren't raised in the church, but they had an encounter with God and they gave their lives to Jesus and they were walking with Jesus for a while and they were about who Jesus is and what he has done. And and in recent years, I've got to rethink these things that I've been taught from the beginning. I wonder if these things that I've been taught from the beginning are true. We see this in the world. And so last week, if you were here, we talked about deceptions that come from our own desires for things in the world. But today, our text addresses deceptions propagated by uh, lies about Jesus. Lots of lies, untruths about Jesus. Lies from this antichrist ideology bent on persuading people to deny that Jesus is the Christ and therefore cut them off from relationship with God the Father. There are tons of heresies in the world. Now, I don't, I don't use that word heresy lightly. Okay, heresy is not a doctrine that I disagree with. Okay, that, that brothers and sisters in other uh, denominations believe. And so I don't believe in that. And so that's, you're a heretic. No, her, man, heretic is a strong word. Heretic is reserved for people who have completely abandoned Jesus. They might claim Jesus in name, but the Jesus that they believe in is not the same guy that the Bible talks about. So we have to use this word very carefully. There are lots of heresies in the world, but John focuses in our text on Christological heresies. That is heresy rooted in lies about Jesus' identity. Christology, like theology being the study of God, Christology is specifically drilling down into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so they're Christological heresies. Most of these uh, deceptions today and throughout history have been related to one or more of the following three categories. I just want to give you a couple categories of deception. Let me check my time here. Okay. Ooh, we got to move. Um, The first is denying Jesus' humanity. Uh, The first deception is the denial that Jesus 
lived a fully human life. There have been many heresies that have spawned from this idea that Jesus was divine, but he could not have been human. This is a convenient deception because if Jesus is God, but he is not human, then he can be your savior, but not your example. The reason this is convenient is because Jesus can pat you on the back, forgive you of your sin, and not require you to live like him. But if Jesus is human, then he's not only our savior, but he's also our example. He calls you to follow him, and in following him, we live like him. And we're able to live like him because he too is a human that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Just like we are human beings who have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So how do we combat this deception? Right? Jesus is divine. He is one with the Father, but his oneness with the Father did not interfere with his ability to be human. Hebrews 2.17 says, He was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The author of Hebrews is saying, is that if Jesus were not truly human, he could not, be his, he could not be our propitiation, which is a word that we learned recently that means to satisfy the wrath of God. So to deny Jesus' humanity is to deny his ability to represent humanity before God and receive for us the wrath that our sin deserves. In order to be a substitute, he's got to be of like substance. In order to be a substitute, he has to be human. So the first way to be deceived is to deny Jesus' humanity. And so like it, the second way to be deceived is to deny Jesus' divinity. See, today, uh, it's, it's, uh, this is more common than denying Jesus' humanity. But interesting, in the first century, it was the other way around. See, today, we have to be convinced that God exists before we can be convinced that God became a human. Uh, in the first century, lots of people believed that God existed. The problem was believing that God would become a human. And so lots of people would identify Jesus as some messianic figure, some divine, sorry, human king that was anointed by God, but that he wasn't divine. And so denying Jesus' divinity, according to Scripture, would uh, be denying his ability to forgive your sins. So the reason Jesus has to be human is so he can be your substitute, right? The reason he has to be divine is because if he's not God, then he has no right to forgive your sins. Remember that scene where he, he tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees freak out. No one can forgive sins but God. The reason for that is because every sin, every offense is first and foremost a sin against God. Because we were made in God's image to to, uh, represent him and to represent his character in the way we live our lives. And so when we hurt one another, which is not according to God's character, not only do we hurt that person, but we slander God's character. We tell that person and the world around us that this is what God is like, that God lives this way, and that's not true. He doesn't live that way. He doesn't hurt people. And so if Jesus is able to forgive our sins, he must be divine because our sin is against him. He must be God. Otherwise, it's like sinning against the person on your right and then justifying yourself because the person on your left forgave you. Doesn't 
Doesn't make sense. The person on your left has no business forgiving you because your sin wasn't against them. It was against the person on your right. And so how do we disarm this deception? There are many passages in Scripture that affirm Jesus' divinity. But I want to stick with one that is thematically in line with what John is talking about. So let's turn to another book that John wrote, the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, verses 6 through 9. Jesus said to him, we sang this song, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus and God the Father are one. See, these are the first two ways that that many heresies, where many heresies begin, denying Jesus' humanity or denying Jesus' divinity, his deity. The third is to deny Jesus' work what he did, and what he accomplished. So three ways we can deny Jesus' work. First, we can deny his righteous life. People will say that Jesus was a good man, but not necessarily acknowledge that he was a perfect man, that he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. But he must fulfill the law of God perfectly if he is going to be our Savior, because part of our salvation is not just having our sin forgiven. See, God doesn't just require innocence from you. He requires righteousness from you. And so to forgive your sin is awesome, but that gets you at zero, right? It gives you a blank slate. But what God demands is righteousness. And so Jesus, as our substitute in his righteous life, not only forgives us of the things that we've done that are wrong, but he gives us all that he did that was right. And so Jesus lived a righteous life. This leads us to the next subcategory, denying Jesus' work by denying his atoning death. Atonement, it's another word we got to talk about. It just, it, a helpful way to understand atonement, we've talked about this, is at one meant, right? The way atonement is spelled, at one meant. You were separated from God, but because of what Jesus has done, you have been made at one with God. Like if we go to a restaurant together and I don't pay my bill, my relationship with the restaurant is going to be hindered. I might not be able to eat there anymore, but you can atone for my sins by paying my bill. And you restore me to a right relationship with the restaurant. That's atonement. You cover my tab. Actually, atonement, it just means to cover. Like literally in in the original language, it means to cover. I've got you covered. I'm paying your debt so that you can be restored to a right relationship. And so our sin creates a debt before God and we can't pay apart from our own death that our sin deserves. But Jesus paid that debt by dying in our place. He made atonement and restored us to a right relationship with God. And so to deny Jesus' atoning death is to refuse to allow him to pay your debt, and you will pay it on your own. And finally, the last way we can deny his work is to deny his bodily resurrection, his righteous life, his atoning death, 
in his bodily resurrection. Some people who even claim to be Christians will say that Jesus' body was never put in a grave, he never rose from the dead, that he was probably thrown into a common grave and eaten by wild dogs. This is a thing, and they still call themselves Christians because they say that the resurrection was spiritual. It was a spiritual resurrection. It was a metaphorical resurrection. It was like actually seeing Jesus' physical body was just mass hysteria. But 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Jesus' body was not raised from the dead, we are to be pitied over all people. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, if you believe that Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then for the love of God, stop calling yourself a Christian. You're not. You're giving us a bad name. We believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if he wasn't, then we should all go home and eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die and nothing matters. If Jesus only gives us hope in this life, in this life only, Paul says, walk away. Don't do it. It's not worth it. The scriptures are clear. Jesus rose from the dead. All of these things, whether it's denying his humanity, denying his divinity, denying the work that he accomplished, all of these are false teachings and heresies that have begun and been propagated since John's day. And he says that they're lies, they're deceptions that lead people away from God. And this is the struggle that we face in culture today. Many people who even call themselves Christians are, 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 are beginning to, to question the truths of his identity and, 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 and calling into question the work that he accomplished. They say to cast away the things that you were taught when you were young. You can't possibly still believe those myths that you were taught when you were young, the only reason you believe them still is because they were taught to you at a foundational young age. And to give up on those things is to cause an identity crisis in yourself. And so the only reason you stick with them is because you were taught them in the beginning. But deny those things, turn away from those things, question those things. Here's a YouTube video I'd like you to see. Here's a book from some crazy, angry ex-Christian that I would like you to read, who will, who will make you know that you should call into question all of these things. And they use wounds and they use church hurt to, to, to get people to, uh, to emotionally manipulate them and deceive them into calling into question the things that you have believed. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm all for being certain. Look, scripture is clear to be certain to, to have assurance of the calling that you have received, to have assurance that these things are true. The Bible calls us not to blind faith. So if you just believe what you believe because you've believed it and it's always been taught you and so you're not going to question that, then I would say, hey, you know what? You should probably uh, look to the scriptures yourself um, Follow Jesus, talk, talk to Jesus, talk to God about these things so that he will confirm these things in you. For those of you who are here, who are in junior high and high school, even early college years, it is important for you to make your faith your own. But it's not by your doing. It's recognizing that Jesus has made you his own. 
that Jesus has purchased you, that Jesus has died for you. And so don't go to the angry YouTuber. Go to Jesus, and he can give you assurance. He can give you confidence in the things that you have been taught. The result of all of this deception is denying that Jesus is the Christ. And John calls those who deceive the church in this way antichrists. They're antichrists because they oppose Jesus, they oppose who he is and what he accomplished. But these antichrist ideologies and deceptions are only scratching the surface. All of it will come to a head when all of these ideologies, all of these deceptions, all of these lies, all of the sinister evil and wickedness will will coalesce into whether it's a person or a system or an ideology that is bent on destroying faith and destroying the community of faith. And, and, And if we see people falling away now because of these like, these like minor lies and trials and temptations and violence and and the culture's view on truth and morality, if that is already shaking us, church, we ain't going to stand when when it starts going down. It's not going to happen. What will happen when Antichrist arrives and the heat is turned up even more, as I said, I don't know if this is going to be an individual human, if it's going to be a group of people, if it's going to be a system, an institution, an ideology. But what I do believe is that the same things we see today and the things that John and his church witnessed in the first century are only the beginning. They're only the beginning. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 23 through 24, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, Or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Imagine people who are not only slandering Jesus, like we experience today, but backing it up with miracles. Right? Imagine, like, there's all kinds of stuff in the media There's all kinds of stuff in social media. There's all kinds of stuff on YouTube and all kinds of books being written and all kinds of people trying to talk about this heightened enlightenment. And like, have you ever thought about crystals and all of this garbage? Now they're backing it up with miracles. That's crazy. Jesus says that's going to happen, that it's going to come with signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. If possible, those who have truly believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. This is why John urges the church not to sit down and figure out times and places and details of who Antichrist is and what his name is going to be and, and is it Gavin Newsom and is it, you know, like the, the, he doesn't concern himself with that. He can, wants us to concern ourselves with the truth. With the truth. Don't worry about the counterfeit. The counterfeit's going to come. Worry about the truth and you'll identify the counterfeit. What we need to combat deception and abide in Christ is not willpower. It's not enlightenment or personal experience or even a particular theology or doctrine. What we need is the truth that we have already received. It's the truth that we all need. 
John urges the church in the truth that they already have. They don't need anything new. It's not Jesus and this other thing, or Jesus, but not that Jesus, this Jesus. It's Jesus, period. As the Bible teaches, as the Bible teaches, this is the truth that they have already received. And John encourages them to remain in the truth and to allow that truth to remain in them. That's what abiding means. It means to remain, to remain in the truth and rest in the truth and continue in the truth. Don't leave it. Remain in it. When the world is turned upside down by violence and deception, all of humanity already is, but it is going to be to a greater degree tempted to grasp for something, some foundation that they can rest their feet upon. And John says that if you've trusted in Jesus, you already have everything you need. We can be confident that whatever deceptions come, we will endure and overcome them because we have the truth and no lie is of the truth. We know the real thing and so we'll not be persuaded by the shadow of a reality. And so we prepare by dwelling not in the future. We prepare not by dwelling in the news. We prepare not by dwelling in the interesting questions that this person asked that I've never considered before. We can consider it by dwelling in the truth, by abiding in the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that all the sin and deception that the enemy wields against this world and against his church has already been judged. All the lies against God, the violence against humanity was judged once and for all on the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus received God's wrath for it all. All of it fell upon Jesus. The judgment against the lies that we believe and the lies that we tell, the wrath of God for those lies has fallen upon Jesus. The judgment for the violence that we inflict and the violence that has been inflicted against us, all of God's wrath that those things deserve have been poured out on Jesus. The judgment for sin from the very first sin in the garden to the very last was judged on the cross. The wrath of God that is reserved for the day of the Lord fell upon Christ so that we could escape it through faith. This is the good news. This is the good news that we have received from the beginning if we have believed in Christ. Though many may tempt us to deny the salvation that we have in Christ, this is the truth that we've received from the beginning. And anything that we could possibly lack, any understanding, any righteousness, any teaching, John says will be taught to you by the Holy Spirit. This is the anointing that we have received. What we need is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what we need is the truth of the anointing, the abiding, the indwelling Holy Spirit. In the same way that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit at his baptism, we have been anointed with the Spirit upon believing in Jesus. And so the Spirit teaches us. How? The Spirit teaches us because he inspired the Word of God. He inspired the authoring of the Bible. And so we learn about God and ourselves. We learn about the truth out in the world. We learn all that we, we, need, we need to know about life and godliness 
The scripture is not going to teach you how to change your oil. You can go to YouTube for that, just not for every other thing. But everything that we need to know about God and ourselves and life, we learn in the scriptures that the Spirit inspired. And then the Holy Spirit in us not only inspired scripture, but illuminates it, shines his light on it, gives us understanding of it. This is why John says, you don't need anyone to teach you. You're anointing the gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given you the moment you believed teaches all that you need to know. This is what we are to remain in. This is our shelter from deception, our weapon to defeat deceptions in our own hearts. We never move on from these truths. We never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is not for baby Christians. The gospel is for all Christians. The gospel is not for those who are just trying to learn about Jesus. We need to come back to the gospel day in and day out to remind ourselves of the truth that we received in the beginning. Learn theology. I love theology. We'll get together. We'll talk theology, be Bible nerds. It's amazing. We'll have a blast. And that's honestly, if you want to talk theology, just reach out and enjoy it. It's fun. But the truth that we need, the thing that's going to preserve us is not your knowledge of the hypostatic union, right? That's just a fancy way of saying Jesus is fully God and fully man. The thing that's going to preserve you is knowing Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. It doesn't matter if you can't define it or describe it, right? You need to know Jesus, the one that you received in the beginning. What God has given us in the gospel and by his Holy Spirit is sufficient to preserve us until, this is how John ends this passage, the return of Christ. In the same way that Antichrist is here and Antichrist is coming, you better believe it, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will come and put away the lies and deception once and for all. Church, it's the last hour. Don't be deceived. Don't give up the fight. Don't cave to the people in your life who want to mock you and humiliate you because you believe something real just because you believed it when you were young. Just because there are other things you could believe doesn't mean those things are right. Not all roads lead to Rome. Not all faiths lead to God. To deny Jesus as the Christ is to cut yourself off from God the Father. Do not be deceived. Many will try to deceive you. Greater deceptions will come. But if you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need to be afraid. Don't be afraid of the deceptions. Be warned of the deceptions. Because God is able to make you endure. You will persevere. So be certain today. Right? Certainty is good. Right? Be certain today that you have the anointing from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling in you by trusting in Jesus, and you will be able to stand confidently in a world full of deception and stand in joy when God comes. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for these truths. Ask that you would, uh, Lord, pour your Spirit out on your church so that we can be confident, Lord, of the, the faith that we have, the truth that we have received from the beginning, Lord. We love you. We give you all glory, honor, and praise. I pray that you would stir our hearts to worship at this time. In Jesus' name, amen.